0: the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops, and some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook, bake, and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grain harvest and distribute it amongst his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief. But this king, you are demanding, but when the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like them nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord replied, Do as they say, and give them a king. And Samuel agreed and sent the people home.
1: There are many, many things, I think, and uh, feel free to tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. There are many things that we do for the sake of Self gratification, and uh, if you don't believe me, there's this there's this instrument that probably all of us have in our kitchens called a microwave, and uh, we we're hungry and we want to be gratified, and the microwave is the quickest way to get that done if we don't have a snack handy. So I think there are many things that we we do for the purpose of self gratification. In fact, if I could walk through the stages of life in our in our modern Day and just share how in each generation people are seeking self gratification. Um, when people are infants, new babies, they cry and cry and cry until they are fed. Gratification. When that infant grows into a toddler, they begin to care a little bit more about their preferences and their wants and the certain kinds of food that they like, and cake as opposed to green beans and, and they want to go to bed never. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: and they throw tantrums and throw throw fits as toddlers because they want to be gratified. That's part of our nature from from birth to seek gratification. As children, we don't want to share our toys and we get really, really annoyed with with toddlers because we no longer speak the same language, right? We don't understand what they're saying, so we get really annoyed with them and oh, they're taking my toy and they're playing with it and that's not gonna happen. I'm gonna take it back. And so as children, gratification. As preteens and teenagers, we're we're not really so interested anymore about, you know, keeping this toy toy for myself and and playing with it and not sharing it with anybody else. No, uh, we seek social acceptance. We seek some sort of accomplishment, right? Either through education, doing well in school, or through hanging out with the right sort of people, the right crowd. We, we want to figure out where our place is in society, and so there's this big struggle that preteens and teenagers have. Why? Because Because we want to be in the place that is right for us, and we want to do the things that are right for us. It's self-gratification. Young adults, this is the generation I am currently in, the stage of life I am currently in, right? After high school and after college, by the way, everybody transitions at a different time, depending depending on whether or not we will continue our education, whether we will choose a career right after high school, or whether we will you know, just choose to be lazy and live at home with mom and dad because adulting is hard. But <laughs> <laughs> young adults, the the struggle is, the struggle for, struggle for gratification is that we want to succeed in life. And so we want to have a family, start a family. And we want to become homeowners. It's like a big thing for young adults. How do I get to a place where I can be a homeowner? owner. And many of my friends currently are in this stage where they're guys we bought our house finally not have to pay a mortgage. (laughs) Start a family. Have a nice career. Become homeowners. Succeed in life. Again, accomplish something. The median adult median adults are pretty much found their niche right i pretty much know what i'm good at i'm a median adult i've had some time to practice i've had some time to figure it out now i need to think about the future and i'm raising my children and i'm thinking about their future and when i get older now i'm thinking about okay i want i want a comfortable retirement and I want a nice place to be, so I'm putting those things in place, trying to plan for that, and starting to save for that later stage in life, so so that I can be comfortable, and so that my family can be provided for gratification. And as senior adults, we, we will, right? I will. Some of us are. Trying to have a comfortable retirement, and trying to stay healthy, gratification, gratification, and these things don't sound terrible to us, right, these things sound pretty good to us, if we can figure it out, but as a young man, being part of this young adult group, I'm thinking ahead, thinking about my own future, and in my generation, if we have the sense to think about our future, well. Well, think about this life that we will live and all of the things we want to accomplish and the ways that we want to accomplish, the things that we want to accomplish, and we ask the question, is it really worth it? Is it really worth being this busy all of the time investing everything that I'm investing in this sort of future just to just to get old and perish and everything I've built to perish along with it that seems kind of shallow and then we get to the senior adult years and we you know the the end is kind of in sight and we look back on our lives and and we think was it really worth investing all of the things that I invested in? what I invested them them in to now get to this stage in life where I'm losing everything that I built, and my accomplishments don't seem to mean much. And now here's here's the end. What have I built with my with my life? This world is is pretty good about keeping people busy until they perish, and nothing on any deep level is really accomplished with the life that this world has to give. Brothers and sisters, Scripture gives us a better way. The Bible gives us a better way than the world does. Last week, we saw the people of Israel come to Samuel. Samuel, according to Deuteronomy chapters 16 and 17, we need a king. And we need this king according to our preferences and God has already instructed Samuel in chapter 8, verse 9, that the Samuel is to grant the request of the people. This is part of God's plan. This thing has been decided by God. Israel will have a king. God will anoint the king, and Samuel will appoint this king. But he tells Samuel, before you grant this request, I want you to tell the people what this king will be like and this is where we find ourselves in First Samuel chapter eight, verses ten through twenty-two. I want to observe this passage of scripture in in three parts. First of all, we'll look at just verse ten, and we'll see that Samuel is actually speaking the words of the Lord, and we'll talk about what that means. In verses eleven through eighteen, we'll we'll see that. Saul, this king that would be anointed and appointed. Saul, this king would represent the people rather than God. And scripture predicts this. And then in verses 19 through 22, we will will see the reality of of what we call narcissus, And narcegesis is a fairly recent term that's been given to the idea that we tend to read Ourselves into the Bible. You know, exegesis is you read the Bible, pull the meaning out of the text. Eisegesis is you read into Scripture what you want to read in. And our as is we, we read ourselves into the biblical story like the biblical story is centered around us rather than around Christ. And so we'll take some time and explore that idea. First of all, we see verse 10. So, Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a... The very first thing we notice in this text is that Samuel is speaking the words of the Lord. It was not so long ago we talked about the role of the Old Testament prophet. And the Old Testament prophet, and Samuel is serving as the first official Old Testament prophet, the first office. The Old Testament prophets prophet would receive a word from the Lord and and he would speak the word of God directly exactly as God had spoken the word and revealed the word to the audience that God had intended. Here the nation of Israel is the audience. The elders of the nation of Israel representing the people, they are the audience. And and Samuel here, it's clarified that he is speaking the word of the Lord, which means this, this what Samuel is about to speak, this is truth from God's mouth. This is to be taken, to be heard, to be received, as God himself is speaking. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we we saw that God was going to choose a priest that would do all that is in his heart and in his mind. This priest was Samuel, and Samuel would serve as the prophet. And so scripture tells us, the story tells us early on that Samuel is only going to do, even if he disagrees with God, right, like what we learned last week, even if he disagrees with God, Samuel, it's already been decided by God that he will do all that is within God's heart and God's mind. We get to chapter 3, and chapter 3 tells us that God himself is guarding the words of Samuel so that none of Samuel's words fail, which means everything that Samuel speaks to the people on God's behalf. This is going to be true. This is going to happen. This thing has already been decided by God. And so when Samuel starts talking about how the king will be, that will reign in Israel and over Israel, this matter has already been decided in the mind of God. It is guaranteed that things will be this way because God himself is protecting, guarding the words of Samuel so that Samuel can only speak truth. So that everything Samuel says on God's behalf will happen. And it will happen in this way. This is what it means when verse 10 tells us that Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord. This thing is said has been decided in heaven. Verses 11 through 18, Samuel begins to describe, or he does describe what this king will be like. Everything that this king Will do. Now this passage, and we mentioned this last week, this description that Samuel gives is exactly the opposite of what the law says in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter seventeen. And so we know from from very early on that this king, Saul, will not be a man after God's own heart, because he will be a king in a way that is exactly opposite of what God has already given in Deuteronomy. We read verses eleven through eighteen to see what this this king Saul will be like. He, Samuel said, "This will be the procedure of the king who will reign. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will draft men for his military." He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing, and to reap his harvest, and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Not only will he draft men for his military, his war machine, but he will draft men to to make the weapons for the military, and he will draft men to work in his fields. He won't work his fields himself. <clears throat> Verse 13, he will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. This man is going to draft men to work in his castle, in his kitchen. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servant as a tax to this king. He will take what belongs to you and those who serve him, that will be their payment. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. You won't be able to keep what you have grown any longer. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. And he will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. This king who will reign over you. He is going to reign over you with an iron fist. He is going to command you. So Samuel gives this description of what the king... Now remember, this has already been decided. God has already said, Samuel, grant their request. Samuel, this is what I want you to do. Now describe for them this king. I want to read Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, and we'll see, remember, Deuteronomy, which, which is written sometime before 1 Samuel, right? Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy, so through Moses, God is giving this law. We discovered last week about how uh, God gave this law and predicted in this law that there would be a time of, of judges, and that after the time of judges, when the judges proved to be insufficient, that there would be a time when the people asked for a king like the other nations and God predicted this God had decided this beforehand a king was always his plan for Israel at, at, at the latest from Deuteronomy but I think probably before the foundation of the world because well God has all knowledge right he knows all things I <coughs> me read to you according to God's law that is prescribed for Israel's king verse 14 when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. You you shall do this. It's already prescribed in the law. One from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, He shall not multiply horses for himself. He shall not multiply horses for himself. Did you catch that? Nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself. The king shall not multiply wives for himself. Almost every king in Israel's history did this. Or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. He shall not tax the people in order to gain wealth for himself. This is exactly what Samuel says Saul will do. It's already been decided. He will, he will live exactly the opposite way than what the law prescribes. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. He will be a humble servant to the nation of Israel. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. And here in Deuteronomy as God, you know, he's giving this law to Moses. Moses is writing this down way before the time of the kings. And as Moses is writing this law, describing who the king should be, or what the king should be like of Right? Entirely selfless. And also desires to do the will of God. Desires this to such a degree that before the priests, the king takes the Bible, the Torah, the law of God. Takes a pen or a writing instrument. They didn't have pens like we have now, right? But a writing instrument. And writes down the whole law before the Levitical priests as his first act as king, so that he would know the law, and then it was to read his his transcription of the law daily. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, daily. So that he might obey God. So that he might follow after the ways of God. And this is the sort of heart that Israel's king was 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 to have according to the law. This is prescribed. This is the command. Now Saul, according to Samuel's words, he will fall short. The other thing that we see here in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 17 verse 20 is that he and his sons, this king that God will choose, he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So it's like this throne is being placed within creation. And God's design for this throne is that someone in the king's line will always sit on the throne and perfectly obey God's law. And we know that no king accomplishes this, right? After Saul comes David, and David uh, is a man after God's own heart. That's how the Scriptures describe who David is. And it's through David's line that this throne is established, this throne that is being described in Deuteronomy, and ultimately, Christ, Jesus Christ, who is a descendant of David, according to the Gospel of Matthew, sits on this throne, perfectly keeping the law. And Jesus Christ becomes king, perpetually fills this role forever. So that is what we are leading up to. Christ's throne is being prepared within Christ's creation. But as Samuel is describing what Saul will will be like what this first king will be like he says Saul He's, he's not going to be anything like what we saw prescribed in Deuteronomy chapter 17 in fact he will be exactly the opposite he will not be a man after God's own heart we do much in this life for the purpose of gratification and here we see with this that the preferences of the people regarding what kind of king they would have. Even though this was entirely biblical, right? That God, God already determined that there will be a king over Israel. The people, we're just asking for what God has already said will happen. in Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is a godly thing that we are asking for. Yet, the preferences weren't so godly. the the way they wanted to use the Word of God to gratify themselves was not so godly. So, this is the king that Samuel describes for, for the nation of Israel. Verse 18. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. Now the word chosen there is very interesting because we see in this text of Scripture God will be the one to anoint the king. Yes, Saul. We'll see that in chapter 10, verse 1 following this, right? God will actually anoint Saul. We see that Samuel will be the one to appoint Saul. And so I'm just reading through this text and it says chosen for yourselves. Whom you have chosen for yourselves? And you just have to wonder What in the world does that mean? If God is the one who is obviously anointing this guy, and if it's Samuel who is appointing this guy, what kind of choice do we, the people, have? The Hebrew word for choice there is is a word that sounds kind of like the something to that effect. And it means according to the preference of. The kind of king that you would choose for yourselves. And so it's like, God, was going to anoint Saul, chapter 10, verse 1, is going to give the people a king first according to their own preference. And he's telling them beforehand, through Samuel, that this king, who I will anoint, according to your preference, according to what you think will need, he will fall way short. This thing that you are seeking for your own Gratification. This thing will ultimately disappoint you. In fact, we continue in verse 18. Then you will cry out in that day because of the king you have chosen for yourself, this king according to your own purpose. You will cry out, you will grieve, you will mourn because of this king who is oppressing you and taking all your servants and children and land. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And God is upfront and honest about that. I'm giving you the kind of king you want so that you, my people, will realize, will know that your preferences probably aren't what is best for you. That what you seek for your gratification will ultimately let you down. My children, I am working for your good. I am working for your good. That you notice your gratification isn't isn't all that's cracked up to be. Your preferences aren't all that they are cracked up to be. <clears throat> what I give you, particularly now in preparing the throne for Jesus, right? the Messiah. What I give you is for your good. And not just some not just something like temporary good on this earth right before you are forever good for my forever good yeah we spend so much time in this life trying to accomplish something trying to live a gratifying life and in the end that just lets us down you know talk to enough people on their deathbed or thinking about like the imminence of the end of my life that it's like yeah, all of those things I did to try and live a gratifying life for myself or try and teach my children how to live a gratifying life, I'm really disappointed with the result and it seems to be the general consensus right? We're satisfied with anything that we can accomplish in this life I think we can learn from all those who have gone before us. I think we can learn from the Word of God here this morning. I, I wish, I wish that I could force my generation to hear this message. We are so busy trying to accomplish so much, and we are trying to do so well in school. Thinking that somehow a good grade in school will lead to a good job and I'll be able to support my my family. Look if that's it, that's so worthless. Right? For most families where the guy is a workaholic because he did well in school, they're miserable. You can't just gotta reward this, right? There's got to be more than me looking back on my life or myself looking forward at my life and seeing all the worldly things that I can accomplish and seeing how how vain, how pointless it really is. There has to be more. If there's not more than that, then what's the point, right? And so at the end of their life, people are in this like desperation. Make the last few moments mean something? Or this just regret about the way that they lived their lives? Because they didn't invest in the things that that mattered. They invested in lesser things, got addicted to lesser things. We see how the Israelites here in this passage, the elders who represent the people, they have they've taken the word of God and they have Said we're doing the Word of God, and they've twisted the Word of God somehow for their own gratification. Does, does it bother anyone else that in our day we see so many preachers and teachers and churches doing, doing the same thing, right? We're going to say that we're teaching God's Word, but then we're going to twist it just a little bit so that we can either get a good experience out of the whole church thing, or so that we can meet some sort of standard for gratification because, oh, look, we're going to teach the Lord in such a way where we can accomplish something by what we do. And that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is, no, you can't have faith in Christ. Because Christ is the one who does this. Christ is the one who sits on the throne when I talk about this I just—I—I I have to admit in the early parts of my ministry my ministry dream was askew it was wrong it was terrible because I was using the word of God to build a kingdom for Andrew Cannon and that is idolatry and that is selfishness right and it didn't matter how successful I was at getting people to follow me or getting people into a church building or, or how I was trying to look at the Bible and say, okay, how can I I read this in a way that is different from the way that people have been reading it historically because I want to tell people something that they've never heard. I want to be profound. I'll tell you what the result was. The result was heresy. It was a misrepresentation of who God is. I started, started studying through the Bible systematically, started preaching through verse by verse, preaching through the Scriptures. Man, my whole world lit up. I realized things about God that I had never seen before growing up in church. It turns out, you don't have to try and say something profound, you just have to preach the text and God says profound stuff about Himself, which is kind of neat. Amen. Right? Right? And I consider my ministry now and it has far greater reach than I ever could have dreamed of gaining on my own here's the caveat nobody knows my name (laughs) which is kind of nice I kind of like that you know it's like this amazing worldwide ministry it's it's not the ministry of Andrew Cannon it's just faithful preaching of God's word God wants his own fruit period so I don't even get credit, right? All the credit belongs to God, but it's amazing. I would rather it be this way than any other way. And we invest in so many things that are, that are pointless. And we, again, try and do well in school, try and have that family, try and accomplish much, try and get the best job, all of these things, they let us down in the end, we will ultimately be disappointed. We exhaust ourselves doing all of these things that are lesser things. That are lesser things. Verses 19-22, we see the reality of Nars and Jesus. And we already have received a taste of this in the text with what the elders of Israel were doing with Deuteronomy chapter 17. Verse 19 here in 1 Samuel chapter 8 says this, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. Look, this doesn't surprise God. God already knew this was going to happen. God has already instructed Samuel. Before Samuel gave this description, God has already instructed Samuel give the people a king. It's, it's already going to happen. God already knows they're going to reject this warning. Right? Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Yes. Yes, there will be. Verse 20. That we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Does Israel not recall the last few chapters of the book where God is the one who defeated Israel? And then, God is the one who symbolically killed Dagon, the false god of the Philistines. And where God oppressed the Philistines in their homeland, in their home country, and where God was fully capable of returning his own ark to the nation of Israel, and where God once again defeated the nation of Israel, and then... Finally, after repentance, God is the one who gave Israel victory. Have they already forgotten all of this? They want a king now who will judge them? Pretty sure God's been doing that, right? And they want a king who will who will fight their battles for them. As if some human king is capable of doing what God has just done in his story doubt it, right? God is the only one who is capable. And so we see early on here in the time of the kings that the king will be entirely insufficient to accomplish the things of God. But that's That's the whole point of Israel being given a king, right? To prove, once again, human insufficiency and the need for God. And then to prepare the throne for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ who can do all of this, who does judge the world, and who doesn't necessarily fight our battles. I think it's dangerous for us to think that Christ fights our battles because we choose some pretty terrible battles. Christ fights His battles, and He gives His people real victory. Christ is the only one who can do this. The kings will prove to be insufficient. But here... In verses 19 and 20, we see something about the throne that Christ is preparing for himself. Things that only Christ can do about Christ's position in this world, about the nature of Christ's throne. And it is a throne of judgment where Christ has the responsibility to judge the world. Which means, brothers and sisters, we don't have the responsibility to judge the world it's Christ's responsibility. Secondly, where it is Christ, and Christ alone, who gives Christ's people true, real, lasting, everlasting victory over sin and over death. Things that really matter. Things that are substantial. The things we should invest in. Well, why do we invest and so many things that are less than Christ. When we feel like we have to perform for the world, why? Why should we perform for the world? Why is education so important that we have now children and preteens and teenagers and college students skipping church? time under the teaching of Christ, with, with the body of Christ, for something that is less than eternal, less than significant, that doesn't even determine how successful we'll be anyway, because according to Hebrews, Christ is the one who upholds all things with his with his word. Right? And I know people who did very well in school that aren't doing so hot. And I know people who were terrible students making so much money, it's embarrassing. Right? But now what you do in school doesn't determine where you will be in life. Please, get out of here with that mythology. Christ is the one who works all things together. He's not working things together just for our gratification, right? How shallow would that be? You know? He's working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And brothers and sisters, there is a difference. Please don't think you have to perform for the world. And here I'm talking to me. I'm talking to my generation. That's the stage of life we're caught in. Why would we not invest in the things of God? Why would we not see first His kingdom and His righteousness? And even in a sermon on the mount, Jesus told us flat out, you can't serve two masters, right? You can't. You will hate one and you will love the other. And Jesus didn't go. Except for in the case where you're trying... No. You will hate one and love the other. It's a necessary dichotomy. We either love God or we love the things of the world. That's not to say that people shouldn't try and do well at school. That's not what we worship. In fact, I think if we love God first, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, we're trying to do well with everything that we do. But we will not do those things at the expense of being under the teaching of Christ as part of the body of Christ. Our priorities reveal our God's. Our priorities reveal our God's. There's a reason in Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, God gives this command to the people that he has chosen for himself the people that he has rescued you shall not have any other gods before me period and this world is so good making us so busy trying to gratify ourselves especially with younger generations we trying to do a work, trying to have the right kind of relationships, trying to be socially acceptable, trying to have the free time that we think we need, trying to get the yard work done, dedicating ourselves to all of these lesser things, ultimately, no value. Brothers and sisters, our value is in Christ. And let me take just a minute, since obviously this morning I'm preaching to the choir. You're here. You're investing in Christ. Right? I know. I know. Let me take an opportunity to invite you. This is why we record the sermons. Please share this later. We all, this includes me, right? We have family, and we have friends, and we have acquaintances, and we have frenemies, We have enemies. We have all sorts of people in our lives and in our circles of influence, right? That oh you like that word for enemies? (laughs) Yeah, my generation invented that too. We work hard. (laughs) This is the message that people outside the church need to hear. And they're not here to hear it. And you're not just going to open up the Bible, oh, let me read 1 Samuel chapter 8 and see what God has to condemn about my life today. No, please. We share this with love, with gentleness, we share this with respect. We we want people to know this is the thing that's worth investing in above everything else. Please, I beg you, reprioritize. Our priorities reveal our God's And so we we grieve with those and over those who have such priorities in their life that they they prove that that the one true God is not their God, right? We grieve. We grieve because of that. Because we know that when someone is saved and really knows Jesus, they can't can't stay away from this. i have tried to stay away from church and I hate it. I can't not go to church. I'm on vacation. We have to go to church. It's Sunday, right? It's, you can't stay away from the, the body of Christ if you love Christ. But the way we the way we prioritize our lives in every generation, right? No generation is excluded from this. The way we prioritize our lives right? that reveals what we worship. The way we spend our money and our, our time Want to know who somebody's God is. You can look at two things, right? Checkbook and escape. And you can see exactly what someone worships. One who loves Christ. Christ to be the treasure, the heart of you with Christ, and where the treasure is. Every sort of treasure that we have, where our treasure is, there our hearts are also. No one is excluded from this. Right? We can look at our own lives, our own checkbook, and our own schedule, and we can see what we worship. Is anyone feeling convicted this morning like I am? This is part of the creation. Is anybody feeling convicted this morning like that? Let us worship Christ. Let us invest in the things that matter, the godly things, the things that last forever, not the things on this earth that will become decrepit and fall apart. Of all of our accomplishments that go past us. Let us invest in something eternal here. And let us challenge our friends and our families to do the same. Those who do not love Christ, those who say they do, priorities prove something quite different from that. Verse 21. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice, which is something that God has already said in chapter 8, verse 9. Listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel Go every man to his city. The people will be given a king according to their preference. And scripture has already said that Saul will not be a king after God's own heart. Well, God, answer. we ask God for something. And He grants us exactly what we ask for. Maybe our ears are perk up just a little bit <laughs> because He may be showing, may be showing us that what we are seeking according to our own preference for our gratification is not the thing we do. <clears throat> People spend their whole lives learning that lesson, and they see the end coming. Think, what have I been doing with my life? They step into the church for the first time. They hear the gospel for the first time. They come to know Christ for the first time. And God has taken their whole life to show them that it's not about the gratification. Well, we pray that people learn this when they're young. I'm thankful that I have been learning. God's not done. We pray that people will receive the mercy of Father Christ. Live a meaningful life that matters more than just this temporary like, existence, right? We follow hard of Christ. We commit ourselves to Christ. Devote ourselves to the things of Christ and to the body of Christ. God, when He's working things together again, it's not for our gratification. It is for our good. That's what we need. Stuff that's being worked together for our good. Oh, God is a good, good father. Good, good, good father.